Human Trafficking True Crime covers the exploitation of men, women, and children across the world. Subject matter may not always be suitable for children or those dealing with mental health issues. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know has been trafficked, please contact the Human Trafficking Hotline by texting HELP, H-E-L-P, to 233-733. Last Word is a lifestyle brand focused on all things anti-human trafficking. According to the International Labor Organization, over 260 million children are forced into employment around the world. Making textiles and garments for the demands of fashion trends we see all on social media. This will often come at the price of a child being forced into labor trafficking. Our ambition at Last Word is to reduce the exposure of those who are trafficked around the world, starting with the garment industry. Last Word offers consumers a refreshed look at recycled, repurposed, and reloved fashion trends. It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that fashion has a way of circling back around, and not always in the best way. Last Word takes all those unwanted and undesired garments, giving them a little TLC or repurpose to create a divine collection you will feel confident, amazing, and inspired in when wearing. Follow Last Word on Instagram at lastword underscore by SL and visit us online at lastwordbysl.com to get your latest fashion trends everyone will be sure to ask you about. A young, compelling, articulate, talented writer goes missing on a hot summer's day in July of 1996. Her life leading up to that day is truly stranger than fiction. A web of sex trafficking rings, organized crime, the Russian mafia, blood-drinking vampires, undercover agents, stalkers, and a relapse leave everyone involved asking endless questions. What happened to this missing mother? Who is responsible for her disappearance? Tonight, we give Susan Walsh the last word. going Megan it's going pretty good welcome everyone for another episode of human trafficking true crime human trafficking true crime sad that we have to report on it but we are glad to be here spread awareness why are you talking I don't know (laughs) very elegant and grand Tan tan tan. Grandios. Howdy all. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Character, it's coming in. It's coming. It's coming um, in. Interesting uh, intro there. Crazy, craziest story ever. But before we get into all of that, we are so behind because we pre-record. So by the time you guys hear this, the um information we are giving you will be way outdated but because we talked about it earlier we wanted to give an update on the pawn shop owner that was murdered here locally to us in Louisville Texas they had three suspects I believe at the time that they were looking at one turned himself in and then uh several days later the following 
two, the remaining two men who happened to actually be brothers turned themselves in as well. So it appears that everyone involved in that murder of the pawn shop owner, and I don't know his name. Do you? Wow. I feel really bad. Well, (laughs) Mr. Pawn Shop owner down the street, who's a very generous, nice man, uh, it appears that they have apprehended the men responsible for his murder. So we do want to give an update on that. And as of the recording tonight, Daniel White. All right, there we go. Pawn shop owner name is Daniel White. No, don't apologize. So it's unfortunate we should have known his name. We we did not. So, but Daniel White, the murders of the men responsible for murdering him have been apprehended. So they are in jail, um, I think, on some pretty hefty bonds. I think their bail is set at like a million dollars. Don't quote me on that, but I feel like they're pretty high. Um, also though, because we have talked about this as well in the past, the young boy out of Midlothian, no Midland, Texas, that we spoke about earlier, that was nonverbal that they found wandering the streets to my knowledge, as of today, as of this recording, he is still unidentified. They do not know who, where he comes from, who he belongs to. So keep spreading that, but those are the two updates i have um i don't have any crazy news stories because i don't watch the news i don't either so that's really all i got on crazy stuff go like comment share please go i do actually there have been quite a few of you that have left comments on instagram social on you know just rating the podcast several of you have donated um i know so i do want to say thank you to that we're not going to name any names because we didn't say we would and i don't want to blast anyone's name out there that may not want that but you know who you are so you the real mvp helping us try to stop human trafficking so thank you for that but in the meantime you can go Go check out some merch. If you're local, you can go check out some of the new custom hand-painted jackets that are in Gainesville. There's, I think, eight, seven or eight of them up there. So I'm super pumped about that. Yeah. And the jackets are really cool looking. Yes. And then the other ones, I've got quite a bit that I'm, like, finishing touches on. Those will be available on the website within probably by the the time this airs if they're not we've got bigger problems (laughs) so be on the lookout for that but let's get into the case of susan walsh it is wild it is crazy it has turns it has twists there's a lot of interesting actors and players megan this case involves reports of the fbi the cia the russian mafia organized crime bosses an underground world of vampires and cults okay what (laughs) i know this story just takes all these crazy turns there's all these actors and leads that are potential with what happened to susan but it it really just doesn't go anywhere and it leaves everyone wondering who is responsible for Susan's disappearance, most importantly where she is. Susan was only 35 years old when she went missing. She had a young son who she loved and was extremely devoted toward. Uh, She was working toward accomplishing much bigger goals and dreams. She was enrolled at NYU to get her master's degree, which I think is pretty exciting. She slips back into this dark 
world of the sex trade. And then poof, she's gone. She is never to be seen or heard from again. And to understand the circumstances around Susan's life leading up to the day that she went missing, we really need to understand who Susan was and how she got to be where she's at because there is just a lot going on and we can't just dive in. So let's break down who Susan Walsh was. She was born Susan Young on February 18, 1960, and she came from a broken home but seemed to thrive growing up. At an early age, Susan knew she wanted to be a writer. Moreover, she really wanted to get into poetry. That seemed to be where her heart was. Susan attended William Patterson University in the 80s where she studied English and writing, even landing a spot as a journalist for the university's newspaper, The Beacon. During her time at William Patterson University, Susan began working as an exotic dancer in strip clubs to fund her education. Very common. So common. Very we common. just mentioned that with, well, she didn't get into stripping, but Corinna Slusser got into the sugar daddy thing. It's Yeah, the it's, sugar daddy. That's more now mainstream, but, you know. In I've, the 90s? In the 90s. Exotic dancing was the way to go. Quick, easy money. Yeah, and people still talk about that. Like, oh, mm -hmm. I paid for my college because I was a stripper. Yeah, exactly. I've heard that as well. And that's exactly what Susan does. She she becomes a dancer to fund her education. And throughout the years, Susan, Susan worked at, it's reported that she worked at massage parlors, strip clubs, places like Aftermath of Plato's Retreat and Show World Center in Times Square, New York. Obviously, these are never places I have ever been to, but... Oh, Times Square. Yeah, and we're also talking in the... night. This is the 90s, so whether or not these places are still around, New York fans, let us know. While working in the sex industry, it came at a price for Susan... Like so many in this industry, drugs and alcohol take over her life and it becomes a full-blown addiction. Her younger half-brother, Arthur Merchant, stated Susan was a sporadic presence in their life for years due to her lifestyle. But that all changed when Arthur became a teenager. On December 24th, 1984, Susan called her father Floyd from jail. She had gotten picked up for possession. Floyd bailed Susan out of jail where she then went on to complete a two-month rehab program, getting clean and staying sober for 11 years. Wow. Kudos to her. That's massively Jeez. impressive. I mean, you have to give mad props to anyone that can... Yeah, two months in an assisted facility. I mean, people fall off the wagon all the time. Mm -hmm. And then staying sober for 11 years just after that short of a time. That's mm -hmm. crazy. I know. It's very impressive. And, and they say that people in recovery, you know, you're, you're, you're bound. Not, I don't want to say you're bound, but it's not uncommon for you to fall off the wagon. So for yeah. her to stay and sober. In fact, they expect it three times. Yes. Okay. I've heard that as well, but I didn't want to say that because yeah. I wasn't sure if I was making yes, that up. Yes, they do. Yep. Three times. It's like the seven. Take seven times for a woman to leave a domestic abuse situation before she finally leaves. And it sh should not just be women. It could be anyone. Yes. Uh, yeah. So 11 years. She stays sober. 
She gets married to a man named Mark Walsh. The pair would welcome their son, David, into the world in 1985. This is the only child Susan and Mark would have together. And a fun little fact about this story that I did not know. Um, Mark, Susan's husband, is the brother of a man named Joe Walsh. And who is Joe Walsh? Well, he is a famous musician and a member of the Eagles. Okay. That's why it sounded familiar. I was like, Joe Walsh, the Eagles, right. Tribute band, got it. I didn't know that at all. Like, honestly, you could put every member of the Eagles in front of me and I wouldn't know who any of them were. (laughs) I know their music. Don't know what they look like. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting. So her brother-in-law is Joe Walsh. He's a member of the band, the Eagles. He's also, you know, he's a well-renowned musician. He's been in several other bands. So I find that very interesting piece of information. It's just a fun, yeah. (laughs) We'll circle back to that. By 1988, Susan was four years sober. She had been out of the sex industry for a while. She was working as a freelance writer, and the couple was living in Nutley, New Jersey, raising their son, David. Susan's life had really turned around, right? She's got this job. She's got a good career. She's being the best mother she can be. It's been said that during this time, she was the main breadwinner for the family, and that Mark was Trying to be a musician as well, but it was a struggling gig. As it always is, yeah. I mean, but is it really, though? Because all the musicians I know, when I talk to them, I'm like, they make some pretty good bank, like, playing. Well, it depends on what kind of musician you are. And if you already have an established band that you're playing for. I guess that's true. But I'm thinking about It's just like everything, you know? I'm thinking about the people that, like, we would work with at the bar back in the day, like... Some of them make some serious bank working and just performing in bars. So that's true. But none of them have kids. The I bar don't believe. life is pretty good if you haven't worked it. Highly recommend. You can make some bank. You can make some bank. When the early 1990s came around, Susan's life hit a bit of a road bump. Her and Mark decided to call it quits and separate. Remaining amicable in raising their son, David, the pair had a really unique arrangement. Susan and David remained upstairs in the area of the house, which had a kitchen, a bathroom, a bedroom, etc., where Mark just moved into a one-room basement unit directly below Susan. I have heard, yes, it's very, very odd. And I've heard it referred to as an apartment, but I've also heard it referred to as a house. It sounds like either an old house or building that was converted into apartments. I'm thinking like just down the street, we have one like that, right? That's a bigger house, but multiple units are within it. I'm not entirely sure, but in any case, Mark's unit did not have a stove or a kitchen, I'm not sure if it had a bathroom or anything like that. It was basically from what I read, it was just a room where he slept. Now, Mark would use the appliances upstairs in return, allowing Susan to use his landline 
since she didn't have one. And remember, this is 1996. Landlines, got it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Landlines and pagers <laughs> and pay phones. That's, that's big for here. Yeah, so she, they kind of have this agreement. They seem to do well with this for several years. But according to her father, Floyd, Susan had been doing some freelance writing for a trade magazine specializing in mechanical engineering, which I thought was pretty freaking Holy shit. Yes. <laughs> I thought the same thing when he said that. I'm like, damn, like, I don't know how, how do you just freelance write for that? You got to know something about that. Like, wow, that's, I, I find that to be pretty impressive. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. I don't, uh, My boyfriend's a mechanical engineer, and I don't understand half the shit that he says to me. I think there's some things you can fake it till you make it. I don't know that writing about mechanical engineering is something you can fake. No, that takes research. But Susan does this, and she, unfortunately, after the split with Mark, this freelance gig kind of dries up. Susan decides to earn her master's degree at that point, and she enrolls in New York University. Wow. Right. So while, yeah, she is living the lifestyle of stripping, this lady has got a goal. She's got ambition. She's got drive. She knows that her son is her priority. She wants to be a writer and knows, hey, you know what? I'm going to strip because I'm going to be able to pay the bills, put the bacon on the table. My kid's going to be fed. I don't know what just came out of my mouth. My kid's going to be provided for, I think is what I was trying to say. And I'll be able to fund my master's. That's insane. Jesus. I think it's. I mean, it's incredible. Pretty impressive. Yeah. That's ambition. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. And so. Because of all of this and and not having a job, she obviously goes back into the sex, you know, industry, the dancing, the stripping part right, because of because it. it's easy money. It's easy money. The freelance stuff is drying up. She wants to get her master's. Like, this is, this is going to bring the bacon home. This is how she's going to be able to afford all of these things. And while she is working as a dancer, Susan meets a man named Al Goldstein, I have read reports that she and Al were in a relationship of sorts. I could not confirm what that actually means. So total room for speculation, but I think you can imply it was a several different things. I think you can imply several different things. What I do know is that it's believed he and Susan met through her dancing, that he was a patron uh, at the clubs that she worked at he knew susan was supporting her way through school that she was a mother and al at the time was also actually an editor for an adult sex magazine called screwed (laughs) i know it didn't really all it said was adult smuck magazine called screwed so i'm like what are we talking about in this when you say smuck that really leaves a lot of room for interpretation i mean i'm not sure i'd be reading this magazine to my kid for bedtime story but no it's probably the one that you accidentally found underneath your parents bed (laughs) that you just kind of ignored 
And then when you got older, you realized exactly what it was. You're like, I've been traumatized. <laughs> I've never had that happen to me before. I can't <laughs> say I have, but that's, I, I know people who have. So, yes. Yeah, so Al Goldstein is this editor for the adult magazine called Screwed. And he is also friends with a fellow editor na- named James Ridgway. And James Ridgway works for the Village Voice. James had mentioned to Al about a project that he was working on, which focused around the sex industry, but that he was hitting this roadblock that no one in the industry would talk to him. Oh, I know who they'll talk to. In here, you can figure it out. (laughs) Al realizes that Susan and James would be a perfect fit. He's trying to write about this industry that this woman who, A, wants to be a writer but also B is in. So it, it made made sense. And the pair met. And afterwards, she lands an internship with the Village Voice. She then becomes the primary researcher for James's book called Red Light Inside the Sex Industry, which was co-written with Sylvia Blanche. Susan's first assignment, though, with the Village Voice was on the Russian mafia, strip clubs, and their ties to the sex trade industry in New Jersey and New York. Wow. Right. The Russian mafia? Can you imagine that being your first story? First story, but that also surprises me about New Jersey and New York and the Russian mafia. I'm not surprised at all. I was like the New York mob. Are those like two different? You're thinking like Italian mob. Yeah, the Italian mob. I think that's the old school John Gotti crap from like like the 80s. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, actually, wasn't John Gotti like, I think the the Gotti guy was in the 90s. I do not know as much as I should. And when my mother (laughs) listens to this episode, I'm sure I will get a phone call about how I I should know all of this because she is borderline obsessed with few things. The mob, the royals, like, so I know certain (laughs) things about the mob. John Gotti was one of the mob, like, boss leaders. The Godfather? No, I don't know that I would classify him as that, but he was up there, right? He's one of them. Never actually seen The Godfather, so. Me neither. We're going to take a lot of But I think, I know, right? We should can't <laughs> we've seen it we've, we've seen we, it we'll go back and watch it we'll watch it tonight and report back uh i bet i would like it but i just never got into it as a kid but when i think the russian mob in new york i don't think it's out of the norm because i feel like it's now more of a melting pot of corruption it's not like what we are used to thinking of the old school italian mob sicilian mob coming over like the quote-unquote traditional mob, like what we're all used to. Right, especially when you're talking about New York. Because New York is where everybody, you know, original, uh, originally originated from, right? We all yeah. came over, I don't want to say we all, but a lot of people came over on Ellis Island out of yeah. New York and settled in New York. Uh, different cultures and backgrounds in one place. Right, a lot of cultures. So I don't know, but yeah, her first... Her first actual piece was on the Russian mob, and it was to focus on strip clubs 
right? And their ties to New 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 Jersey. Why can I not talk? New Jersey and New York. And Susan told her friends she was super excited for this opportunity to write about something that she personally was experienced in dripping. Right. But that she was also excited to take the one thing she really loved, which was writing, and kind of put them... Two and two. Blend mm-hmm. them. Blend the families. Yeah. And so this Russian mafia piece was focused on young young girls and women from Russia, as well as other countries, who were answering ads to be professional dancers in New York. The Russian strip clubs would promise these girls and women with dancing careers in the New York Ballet and other reputable dance companies. Many of these women were classically trained dancers. Holy shit. Literally just looking for an opportunity to make a career out of dancing in the United States for the New York Ballet. Like, do you know how big that is? I danced growing up. Like, that's That's huge. Huge. So these girls are totally coerced. And then once they're arrived, they're forced to work in these strip clubs within the Russian community. And God knows... Exactly. And God knows what else they were forced to do besides stripping. But them stripping alone, that that straight up is human trafficking. They were coerced, deceived into coming here. They don't even have to have sex with anyone at that point. It's still considered human trafficking, but that's not really what they called it back then either. So let me mold this woman into my personal plaything. Right. Uh, everything I read back from like the reports back then would call it se- uh, sex slavery. Like they don't actually say the term human trafficking, which really only is in the last, I would say, 10 years become more prevalent. It really wasn't used. Human trafficking wasn't something that you said in the 90s. Right. I mean, I wasn't born. Yeah, I was going to say, right. not that you would know, but totally. I never heard it called human <laughs> trafficking. I just heard it called sex slavery, but... Either way, Susan's friend and colleague, journalist Jim Ridgway, said Susan got super involved in this story, where the leads were taking her, what was going on behind the walls within these clubs, who was involved. He goes on to say that Susan found out that a lot of these Russian clubs had silent partners, and some of those silent partners allegedly had ties to organized crime in Jersey and New York. The mob. James stated that as the story started to develop, some of the silent partners began to side with the ladies who were allegedly being forced to strip in these clubs. And a sort of inside war breaks out between the Russian mafia who are running these clubs and their silent partners with ties to organized crime who are against holding these women captive. Is what the story is. That's kind of interesting. This story is literally... Silent partners making money side with the women. That you don't... It's unfortunate, but you don't hear about that a lot. You don't. And it makes you wonder who the silent partner was. Well, they're all mob... Mobsters. (laughs) Mobsters. No, it's just the mob. Capital T-H-E mob. There's not just one. They're all, there's so many. It's a bunch of badass, not badass, bad, well, I guess they could be badass Bad losers. men with a gentle sad. 
What? <laughs> bad men with a gentle side. Organized crime. Oh, bad yes, with a gentle yes. Side. Okay, I'm following. <laughs> Sorry, I had a moment there. I was like, what are you trying to say? Okay, the article that Susan was working on related to the Russian mafia was published on August 2nd, 1994 in the Village Voice. She would tell her father, Floyd, the case with the Russian mafia was pretty big. She had information and evidence that could put people away, people with ties to organized crime, and she believed her life could be in danger. Oh, shit. After the article was published, Susan gained a lot of praise for her work on the piece, but she also got a lot of threats against her life. Her friend stated she became paranoid after the article's pub publication, believing she was being stalked by people within this organization, people that were out to get her. Wow. Do you think she's got a level of paranoia or do you think this is actually like true? Maybe a little bit of both. I think it's a little of both. Yeah, I do. I, I think because as we go on with the story and the amount of times that she brings it up to people, I just don't know that I can cast it aside as being just straight paranoia Okay, for me. But let's keep going down the line. You can see what I mean. But yes, yeah, after this, this is when the paranoia really kind of starts. It's after this article comes out. She feels she's being stalked. She feels that people are after her. She's already told her dad that this story is a big story and she has information on people a year after the russian mafia story was published james with the village voice got a tip about missing blood from new york hospitals that was uh, supposedly taken by a cult of vampires oh apparently in the early 90s an underground world of vampire clubs started to take over greenwich village in new york I read one report said there were over like 5,000 different. Oh my God, was it the Cullens? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't know. But apparently the story goes that there were missing blood bags from hospitals, from the blood banks. So James asks Susan to investigate the story. Uh, she is told by this group that they would have meetings where people within this vampire community tell Susan that they have sacrificial secret killings, that they drink blood of individuals, they hold rituals. Susan, her friends of all and her family have all said that she dives deep into this story. And many stated Susan honestly believed what these vampire cult members were telling her about these sacrificial killings. It's also been reported that Susan may have engaged in a romantic relationship with one of the cult members while she was investigating the story. I could not confirm that, but that has been what several people have stated. Wow, she really dives deep into her investigative reporting. Mm-hmm. After working, she does. And it, it's like after she's working on this story, she submits the article, right, for publication, but the Village Voice felt her writing process on this piece was a little skewed and one-sided. 
So the village voice decided not to run the story. And it said that Susan was a little upset about this. It's probably because she sided a little bit more with the vampire cult in things. I would like to read the article and how she wrote it. Because, you know, also, too, we don't know what her relationship fully was like with this James Ridgeway. Like, is he just a mentor or is there some type of relationship there? And if she was having a relationship with one of the cult members, were you then a little upset? Decide not to run her story just because of spite? I don't know. We couldn't read the art. I couldn't read it. I couldn't share it with you to read because I couldn't find it because it never ran. But everything I read said that she tells everybody that they tell her about these like monthly rituals, this like underground basement. It's very QAnon, but like way before QAnon even was out, right? Like we're talking about shit. This was what, the 90s? So it's weird. It's very weird, but what it, how can you discredit it? Cause we don't know what Susan, like why she believed this. We don't know what she was being told. Right. We don't know what she witnessed either. We don't know what she saw. And could it be that the relationship maybe jaded her perception on the story? Possibly. Could it be that there's something more sinister and darker going on? Who really knows? But the story is... Do I think they're real vampires? No. Do well, I think defined they're... real vampire. Sparkle like, in the sunlight. Cullen-style vampire? Yes. Where they need to drink blood to survive and they'll die in the sunlight? No, I don't necessarily believe that. But I do absolutely believe that people do this shit. I yeah, think people are very... sacrifices? For sure. Yes. For sure. I it's think borderline pe- cannibalism at that point. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's disgusting and it's, it's, it's evil. I mean, there's so many different words for it. It's sadistic. It's all kinds of weird stuff, but I do think it happens to what extent. I don't know. Do I really think everything that QAnon talks about and all that? I mean, I have no idea. Do I think anything is possible? Sure. But I don't know what Susan saw. I don't know what she witnessed. I don't know what she was told. Whatever it was, she believed it. And we, truth be told, may never know what what it was that she knows. We may know. We just have a bunch of questions, right? Right. So remember I had said Susan was working on a book with James Ridgway, and she was the primary researcher for it. Well, by 1996, the research for that book was complete. The Russian story had already been published. The vampire story was dropped. And there really wasn't any work left for Susan to do. And so she was let go from the village voice. It's sad. Of course. James says that his interactions with Susan at that point just became less frequent than it had been in the past and that when he did see Susan, she appeared to be struggling. In June of 1996, one month before Susan goes missing, things were on the up and up. The book that she had worked on for over three years with James and Sylvia, Red Light, was officially published and a publisher's party was held in New York City where James noticed Susan's wrists were bandaged and he thought that she was using again. 
He stated at that time he encouraged Susan to get help and to seek treatment, to which she responded with, I'm fine. I'll get help if I need it. It's believed that she was abusing Xanax and other prescriptions, and she was drinking again as well. Seems a little vampire culty to me. I'm not gonna. Yes, they don't actually say, but they do imply, very much imply that it's related to what, like S N bondage. What is it? S N M. S M. Yes, whatever that is, like that bondage stuff. But they don't actually outright say that. It's just. They imply it. So I don't know what the... Ba- which could be self-mutilation, too. Who who honestly knows? She basically is like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. It's all fine. Everything's fine. We're all fine. It's good. We're going to be fine. Nothing's matter. But it doesn't really seem to be that as the case because throughout the night of the publisher's party, Susan mentions to several people, several different people that she was worried about her safety, that she told one of her old college classmates, Glenn Kenny, who was at the publisher's party, that she was worried for her life and that someone was after her. And she goes on to tell him that she is working undercover for the CIA and the FBI, and or that she's working undercover with the CIA and that she has FBI contacts relating to the Russian mob. Okay. Yeah. And she tells him that she thinks she's being followed. So it's like, again, she's telling people. But they, like me, are probably like, oh, she's just paranoid. And you're back on drugs. We're concerned you're back on drugs. Yeah. It did whatever it was, didn't stop Susan from keeping a normal life or routine. She's still dancing to support herself and her son. And even though she relapsed, Susan still has this goal of trying to be a writer. She was hired out by a German documentary crew making a film about Russian immigrants becoming go-go dancers or strippers. And one would have to equate that to the work she had done on the Russian mafia case. Oh, yeah, first story. hmm And leading up to her disappearance, Susan shared concerns yet again about being followed to her friend Melissa Hines. At first, Melissa has said that she believed Susan was overreacting and that she was seeing things. She felt like Susan had fallen off the bandwagon again and was essentially hallucinating. Until Melissa herself witnesses someone following them when she was in the car with Susan. Oh, no. Credibility. Credibility. And that's one of her good friends. And she says that they were driving together when Melissa, Susan kept telling Melissa she was being followed. Her friend doesn't believe her until she literally sees this car following them. Which is what a lot of people, you know, they need to see it to believe it. Exactly. They do. I mean, I, I understand that, but... And they all don't know that she's told this person this because all these people aren't talking, right? Right, they're not connected. And not at this point in the story. She tells Melissa that she felt 
that she wasn't going to make it in the next year and that she was going to be killed. Two weeks before Susan goes missing, she would speak to her brother Arthur twice. The full details of those conversations have never been released, but it has been reported that during the first phone call, Susan mentioned to her brother about taking a trip to Las Vegas, how she was working on a case with a government agency where the CIA, FBI, or Justice Department were involved, and she ends the call telling her brother that she wants to go watch Roseanne, the TV show, which in those short bits sounds like it's all over the place but back then you didn't have TiVo and if your show was coming on you definitely abruptly ended your shit to watch the TV show so and it's at the time to him sounds probably crazy but what we know now this is now becoming a pattern she's told multiple people something similar each time right like maybe she's like hiding code in it at this point oh my god I didn't even think of that yeah or like she's dropping breadcrumbs. telling a different thing, and she's like, yeah, this is what's happening to me. Right. Well, it's like, this story is one that a writer would dream of, right? And she, it's weird, because she's a writer, and her story is just so, what? Yeah. Like, every time you think you've got something it's figured out. It's kind of fictional. Exactly. Yeah. About a half hour after they speak, they speak again. And all that's reported around that conversation is how discombobulated it was compared to the first one, according to her brother's rec- recollection. The conversation was just kind of all over the place, and it abruptly ended when Susan told her brother she would call him back. And that was the last time that Arthur ever spoke to his sister. Arthur Merchant describes that call as being, quote-unquote, very weird. She was out of it. She seemed distracted. Around this same time, about two weeks before she went missing, a male that Susan had been involved with previously assaulted her current boyfriend, Christian, at Susan's home. Subsequently, a domestic assault charge was filed, and a police record is on... They do have a police record of this. Melissa's, Melissa, Susan's friend, convinces her to take out a restraining order against this male. Leading up to the disappearance, Susan mentioned to Melissa about getting out of dancing and how she wanted to get out of New Jersey. She told Melissa she wanted to start over in Florida where her cousins were living and that she already had a job lined up and feeling this would just be a really great opportunity for a fresh start for her and David. So Florida, Las Vegas, she's telling someone else. I think it's code. It could be. I've never thought of it like that. Well, let's let's get you the rest of the details, Inspector Gadget. Okay. 48 hours before Susan goes missing, an intriguing opportunity arises that becomes a key piece of evidence in her disappearance, in my opinion. On July 14th, 1996, Susan was filmed for a documentary titled Stripped. The idea was to focus on humanizing the women working in the sex trade industry. 
Jill Morley was producing the film and had approached Susan to be in the documentary. The pair met years prior when they both danced together at a go-go club. I'm about to be like, this girl is connected. Uh Uh-huh. I tried to watch this documentary because I've seen clips, right? Susan's case has been profiled. I originally saw it on Unsolved Mysteries many moons ago. Um, And they mentioned this and reinvestigating this case again, I was like, I want to watch this stripped. It is not anywhere online. I couldn't buy the VHS tape on Amazon and have it shipped to my house. I don't have a VHS tape. So yeah. So I'm like, I don't have a player. So I obviously am not going to buy that, but I couldn't find it on YouTube. I can find the little clips that are already out there, but I'm like, I want to watch the whole effing documentary. I want to see everything related to it but i could not find it and i don't have a vhs player so i'm not it one of the clips that's on the internet out there susan states and i quote it's draining me and i have been in four and a half years four years too long i'd say and i'm stuck in this conundrum because i feel so drained and i'm damaged right now I will admit that I'm very damaged from this business. I'm hurting very bad. She goes on to say, I recently started drinking. I lost 11 and a half years of sobriety because of dancing, because it just got too painful. Wow. It makes you like your heart just uh, like hurt for that person. You're just, Especially when you watch, like, obviously I'm reading this, but when you watch and listen to her saying it, you, you can hear it. I can hear you it can in hear her the voice. Mm-hmm. You can hear everything. Like, when she talks about it being painful and damaged, like, you just hear her voice. She goes on in some of these clips to talk about her mood swings. Uh, how she'll have fits of rage with her friends. They go out mail bashing on nights, but then she'll turn right around on the flip side and be crying on stage when she's dancing. She talks about how at times it's really easy to escape into a song, but then at other times it's extremely difficult. At one point, Susan's pager actually goes off during filming and she states, oops, It's my beeper. It's probably a stalker right now. All of the other girls in the clip start laughing, to which Susan follows up with, I do. I do have a stalker. She says this. This is totally code. How is that code? I mean, she's just, she's just like trying to say something without saying something. And people just aren't, she's being gaslit, actually. She's like gaslighting herself. Yeah. She's like putting putting it out there, but not, she's dangling the carrot, but not yeah. letting you take a bite. Yeah. I mean, I can see what you're saying. Absolutely. It is code because I, I say that, I, we don't know if it's actually code, but she's not coming out and saying, and again, this is why I wanted to watch the documentary because we don't know. And she could have said something and they edited it out anyways. But what we do see, and from what I have read, from her friends and witness accounts and stuff. No one ever like specifies who all these stalkers are. I've found a couple names related to some of these people, 
but they don't ever specify. Well, someone was stalking her and she straight says it 48 hours before she goes missing is when this documentary was filmed. So 48 hours before she goes missing, she literally says, I do, I do have a stalker. Susan goes on to state in some of the videos that dancing deals with a lot of sexualized emotions and she feels she's lying to her emotions when she dances. And I thought that was a really interesting clip because she kind of talks a lot about how dancing hits on just your vulnerabilities with sexuality and understanding love. And she's really smart. Like listening to her talk, you're just kind of like, whoa, I am. She's profound. Mm -hmm. She's very in intelligent articulate she definitely knows a lot more better bigger words than i do (laughs) (laughs) she's way better off writing than i am just some random person uh yeah but she she talks about this in the clip and it's just it's eye-opening because she's very vulnerable and her friend jill morley even says that she seemed very open in the film when they were talking about During this 48-hour period beforehand, at some point she tells her friend Jill Morley that she has had bronchitis, emphysema, and ulcer, and that she's been in the hospital twice that week. She went on to tell Jill about her mood swings, about being depressed, and how she was just tired. Okay. Yeah. Jill sensed Susan wasn't her normal bubbly cheerful self but and that she did seem drawn during the interview but at the time she just didn't know if it was the drugs if it was her health if she was Susan was just exhausted and going a million miles an hour you're stripping you're being a mother you're you know going to school that's a lot to take on that's that's more than a 40-hour work week you're working as a freelance writer investigating these stories yeah and so Jill just didn't know why Susan she felt Susan was off but didn't really couldn't equate what it was right. it could have just been exhaustion mm-hmm. I have read reports that Susan was bipolar and that with the relapse and being back on drugs and drinking that she wasn't taking her medication but I could not confirm that she had bipolar, but we do know she was drinking and using drugs okay. again. Her her behavior does sound a little bit erratic. Erratically bipolar. I would agree in some of the cases where she's kind of like, it's so easy to say that, but then think about what if all of this shit is real? And it's so easy to sit here and say she's acting bipolar, she's acting erratic, she's acting paranoid, schizophrenic, crazy. Right, I mean, but yeah. really, we're all wrong because yeah, we're the crazy. The bitch one. was right; like she knew what the fuck she was talking about. Like yeah. you know, and I say bitch with term of endearment. Please don't jump down my throat. <laughs> the last time Susan sees her father Floyd, she expressed her concerns again about being followed, knowing too much. According to her father, Floyd, quote, she was worried about someone having her killed. She was coming apart at the seams, end quote. Jesus. As a father, I feel like you should have been like, hey, why don't you come home for a little bit? 
that's exactly what my dad would say. And then I would say, no, I don't want to. And then my dad would follow up. Oh, okay, well, I'm going to come hang out for it. I know you got like a, yeah. some plumbing shit you need done. Surprise, shoddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise, shoddy. Oh my God, that is hilarious. No, but for real, I feel like that's exactly what either one of our parents, I think, would do. Oh, 100%. My mom did that while I was in college. Especially if you know that she's telling her brother... CIA's at you know working with the CIA I'm being followed I'm scared she's now telling her dad you know those two for sure are probably talking to each other yeah they're like oh did you hear yeah I heard but I guess it's easy to say if you know but if she kept reassuring them after the fact like oh I'm fine no it's fine it's fine Mm -hmm. I I just I'm just tired I got all this stuff I gotta do yeah and we know that she did take out a restraining order, so she could have passed that off as, oh, I got the gun. Okay. Susan Walsh was a mother, a daughter, a sister, friend, loved by so many. She worked hard at being a writer. The one thing she always knew she wanted to do. Her lifestyle in the sex industry allowed Susan's addiction to creep back up, causing her to relapse. The investigative stories she worked on put Susan at risk. She told several people she was scared for her life. She felt she knew too much about powerful people. She was being stalked, had a restraining order out against one man, and she was being followed by several unknown people. What happened on that hot summer day when she walked out of her house? Susan's story begins... July 16th, 1996. 36-year-old Susan, her 11-year-old son David, and her 21-year-old live-in boyfriend Christian Pepo are all in Susan's Washington Street home in Nutley, New Jersey. Mark, her estranged ex-husband, is downstairs in the unit below. Around 12 p.m., Susan reportedly wakes up Christian saying she has to make a phone call and will be back shortly. Before leaving the house, Susan stops by Mark's downstairs unit where he reports Susan said she would return in half an hour. She had a couple errands to run and needed to make a phone call. It is reported she was calling one of her booking agents who did her dancing gigs. Susan walked away that day and has never been seen again. What's up? Wow. Oh, I thought you were going to ask me something. No, I know. I was just like, geez. So she tells everyone she's she got a phone, a phone call, call and she leaves to go make this phone call. On the morning, Susan disappeared July 6th. Wait, but does she have a phone to make the phone call? We will circle back to this. No, okay. she does not have a phone call. On the morning, no, she does not have a phone. What did okay. I say? Phone call? Yeah. No, she does not have a phone. So she's going to pay phone. Correct. Okay. But we will get into all of the nitty okay, gritty okay. details. On the morning of Susan's disappearance, July 16th, her friend Melissa had been communicating with a mutual friend of her and Susan's, Joey Williams. Joey and Melissa had decided to stage an intervention for Susan. They were going to express their concerns, offer support. Help Susan get her life back on track. Mm -hmm. At some point in the morning, Melissa 
sends a page to Susan's beeper to have Susan call her. Okay. What would normally happen is she would either use Mark's phone or go use the payphone across the street. After the page goes unanswered, Melissa drives over to Susan's house so she can just talk to her, hoping to catch her, right, off guard, whatever. Once she arrived, Melissa noticed the front door was shut and locked. After knocking with no answer, Melissa then realizes that the windows are also shut and locked. At this point, her spidey senses start going off because she knows that Susan typically leaves the front door open and unlocked, as well as the fact that it was in the high 90s that day. Oh, God, yeah, hot in New New Jersey. Well, so I'm thinking they obviously do not have central air because here in Texas, you're not going to see anyone's front door wide open in the middle of July. Absolutely not. And if you do, you're going to hear their mother screaming, we're not cooling up, cooling down the outside, or you know what I mean? Some comment. So they must not have central air, and it was not out of the norm for her to leave these things open, but they're all shut. She also notices that... David and Mark, or excuse me, that Mark's car is not there. And so she leaves and comes back an hour later. While Melissa is there a second time, Mark and David pull up in Mark's car. The pair had bags from Staples where they supposedly got school supplies for young David, which it's July. I feel like that's a little early for school supplies, but... It's a bit. It's barely. I don't live in New York, so I don't know when that it just seems odd. But either way, Mark informs Melissa he last saw Susan when she left that morning and didn't know where she was. Melissa leaves knowing that Susan's driver, Joey, their mutual friend, is going to be showing up shortly to drive Susan to work. Susan, Where's, where's Christopher? Christian? We'll get there. Jumping the gun again. Christian at this point is, yeah, you are jumping the gun, but I'll answer. It's totally fine. He, I guess at this point, he has already left for the day. He left at some point. Yeah. Susan hires drivers for several reasons, right? She doesn't have a car, but also for security reasons, since she's received all of these threats related to the Russian mafia story and... We also know it's not uncommon for girls to hire drivers. Joey is scheduled to pick up Susan at 5 p.m. that day. He waits for over an hour. After Susan doesn't come, he calls Melissa and lets her know. And throughout the night, she continuously tries to get in touch with Susan but never gets an answer back. Around 12 p.m. the following day, July 17th, Susan's ex-husband, Mark, reports her as a missing person, telling police he last saw her the previous day around 12 when she left to make a phone call and run some errands. Police Lieutenant John Ryan with the Nutley Police Department stated investigators learned that Mark, too, felt Susan had lost her sobriety and slipped back into the world of addiction, so Mark would not allow Susan to use the phone if she was calling quote-unquote booking agents 
<coughs> excuse me, or anyone else that she didn't know their full name for. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so I feel like that's a little bit of control, mm-hmm. some boundaries. But at the same time, I can understand where he's coming from because I but wouldn't want... you can still use the stove. True, but... I can understand where he's coming from on if she's calling her drug dealers and she doesn't, she only has nicknames for them. I don't know that, I, and I would want that. Well, you yeah. can go make your drug you calls. You also have the kid too. Yeah, so. but Melissa, I don't know why you wouldn't allow her to call her friend Melissa. That yeah. seems weird, but we don't know. So either way, police were unable to get phone records from the payphone because, hey, guess what? For all you young folks, payphones. Didn't have public phone records, which is why a lot of people used them to taunt police or make anonymous phone calls. There were no public records. So they don't have any idea who she was calling. Susan's home was searched in the days following her disappearance when where they found her pocketbook, wallet, keys, and her pager were all left behind. Police gathered some evidence from her home, but did not see any obvious signs of a struggle at that point. Jill Morley, the producer for Stripped, was contacted by police regarding Susan. Jill turns over all of the footage that was taken 48 hours before to investigators. However, investigators were never able to connect the person Susan had a restraining order against to her disappearance, nor were they able to identify who she was referring to in the clip when she says, I have a stalker when her pager goes off. Mark and Christian both cooperated with police in the early stages of the investigation Christian told police he was there the morning Susan disappeared. She woke him up stating she was leaving to make a call, didn't say to who, and would be back. Christian then stated he started watching a movie with her son David, which ended around 1245. And by 145, Christian was waiting for a bus heading to Newark. According- the movie was 45 minutes long? I thought the same thing, but I'm also like, well, if he woke up around 12, this kid may have already put the movie on and he's just like watching it midstream. But then also you have an hour walk from when you, you know, the movie ends around 1245 and then you're getting the 145 bus to Newark. That's a whole hour. How far do you got to get to this bus station? What'd you do in that hour? Mm -hmm. Police have said that neither one of them like Mark or Christian are suspects, but I don't know how that they can actually rule out Christian's alibi. Was he really at the bus stop? Like have they, can they actually confirm that? Or is it just that in the early stages, Christian's story and Mark's story matched in that Susan told them both she was leaving. So they weren't looked at heavily because their stories kind of coincided with what, they said Susan was doing. She told both of them she had to make a phone call, run some errands, and that she would be back. So I, I don't know if they just didn't believe that Christian did it or if he they actually have physical proof that he bought a ticket, was on the bus. I'm not really sure. But Mark, like I said, his story matches Christian's in that Susan said she would be back, never came, but that she never returned. One month after her disappearance in August of 1996, 
The media started picking up Susan's story and the Nutley police received a tip from an informant that Susan was working the streets as a prostitute in Newark and in Jersey City. The informant, who wished to remain anonymous, told police that she met Susan on the streets of Newark, where they were both working, and that Susan had been living with her for the past two weeks. Okay. Random. But Lieutenant Ryan stated this person had facts on Susan that at the time were not released to the public. And so because of this, he felt that this witness was credible. Lieutenant Ryan stated that the informant told police that Susan didn't want to go home and that she would kill herself if police made her. Okay. So bizarre. That's really bizarre. Her friend Melissa met this witness and after meeting the witness felt that this person fabricated the entire story for either attention or money or some other motive and that she just didn't feel this person was being truthful. So take that for what it is, whether or not this person had hard evidence, I'd, like facts about Susan that the public didn't know, we may never know. She could also be just like a third-party friend that knew of what she looked like, what were some distinguishing features about her. Yeah, and, well, and it's... Kind of how I feel about the dozen eyewitnesses that came forward after her story started picking up headlines around the news. The police said that they had several eyewitnesses that stated they saw Susan and were able to pick her up out of alignment of a lineup, but her photo was all over the news at that point. She, I'm not trying to be harsh, but she is a basic white female blonde hair blue eyes pale skin like how credible can these eyewitnesses actually be if her face is already being blasted everywhere yeah you'd have to know a very intimate details regarding her Mm -hmm. i think one of the more credible sightings police got was from a local pizza guy down the block from Susan's house near the payphone was a pizza place where the workers actually knew Susan and her son. Eyewitnesses told investigators they saw Susan going back into her home that afternoon. After Susan disappeared, Melissa would learn that one of the booking agents that Susan used was also a drug dealer and that it's possible she could have been calling to buy drugs. Police started hearing Susan was homeless, living on the streets, working as a prostitute to pay for her drug habit, and overall, she just was not doing well. Her friends and family believe that her case, because of her lifestyle, she was stereotyped, and that police didn't really take the investigation seriously because of her drug use and being a stripper. Lieutenant Ryan denies these claims, saying he personally went to almost all the strip clubs in New Jersey and some in New York looking for Susan. (laughs) I bet you did, Lieutenant Ryan. Yeah, I bet you did. Uh Uh-huh. I bet you did. We know. You know what? I bet you even did that off company time. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, expensing our tax dollars at legs and eggs. Exactly. We're having lunch. That's a place here in Dallas. Legit, have you never heard of it? No. 
I don't know if it's called that anymore, but in college, yeah, there was a place here in Dallas called Legs and Eggs. It was like a 24-hour freaking breakfast buffet, strip club. Yeah, nasty, raunchy. But the whole point is Lieutenant Ryan is driving around all these strip clubs, quote-unquote, looking for her. And you know... You know your tax dollars are paying for that. <laughs> yeah. Fine folks of New Jersey. There is another solid lead in my honest and humble opinion from Melissa Hines, Susan's friend. This came one month after Susan disappeared. Melissa saw Susan getting into a car with a male Melissa was able to write the license plate number down, providing it to police who were then able to track the owner of the car down. This man identified, this man's like identity has never been identified, like been released. I cannot talk. This man's identity has never been released. (laughs) Huh. Anyways, now that I can speak, What he did say was that he could confirm he was with a woman similar to Susan that night. I did not confirm or deny. I did not have sexual sexual relations with that woman. (laughs) Every time I think of that, I always think of Hillary Clinton when she turns around and says, I ain't no Tammy Wynette standing by my man or something like that. Stand by your man. Yeah. Who sings that? Tammy. Tammy. Yeah. George, George and Tammy. There's a there's a clip somewhere out there of Hillary Clinton, Clinton making some comment about after that whole scandal. I ain't no Tammy Wynette standing by my man. Uh, but you did. <laughs> but you did. Anyway, so she sees Melissa, or excuse me, Melissa sees Susan getting into this car. She gets his license plate number. Police talk to the man. He cannot name The name of this woman can't give a name, doesn't know it, won't give it, not really sure. Does say that he was with a woman similar to Susan that night. When shown a photo of Susan, he states it could have been her. There's unfortunately no way to positively identify whether or not the woman with that man that night was or was not Susan. So now I'm like, who the hell is this man? And why has his identity never been released? Where'd you come from, sir? Who you be? Where do you at? Where you at? No. <laughs> You're just going to whisper the mob every time you think it's the mob. <laughs> the mobby mob mob. You don't want to say it too loud. Right. Because the mob and the CIA don't have devices that they can like <laughs> turn up and hear what you're saying. <laughs> We're going to have this special edition where you have to play the episode backwards because Megan is paranoid that the mob's <laughs> going to be listening. <laughs> uh susan's story was featured on several different publications uh after she went missing it was on season nine of unsolved mysteries it was on i think one of the first seasons of the show disappeared her friend jill morley at some point in the investigation decided she was going to take matters into her own hand and started going undercover in some of these places that Susan worked and was investigating to which she states that things got a little dicey and she was warned to back off or she would end up missing as well. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. 
then her case just kind of goes cold. And in 2005, almost a decade later, a new detective, Steve Rogers, is assigned to the Nutley Police Department, reopening the investigation into Susan's disappearance. Detector, detective Rogers begins to sift through the evidence that was taken from Susan's home back in 1996. And to his surprise, Megan, he finds Susan's wall calendar in one of the boxes. Okay. You know, like back then. Yeah, wall calendars. You had everybody's birth dates and Johnny's soccer game is at three and everything is, yeah, on that. It's your phone calendar. Exactly. It's what we use on our in our phones now for sure while he's going through this calendar though she does input things she's got appointments she's got gigs she's got you know reminders everything you would typically see on that and then the entire month of July is just gone so that leads detectives to question did she rip it off or did someone else rip it off? And what was on there? If someone right. else ripped it off, what did she say? And it makes you kind of wonder, like, well, if you think that, then you should get one of those papers, right? And then the chalk or the, the crayon. Oh, yeah. Where you color it. Thing. And then it, like, gives you what the person wrote on the page. Like, if they wrote it hard enough. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't really go into detail. You should call. Well, I don't think they're really happy campers because things have kind of taken a turn for them recently. So, yes, the entire month of July is gone. Detective Rogers also reaches out to Mark about interviewing him and taking a second look at the apartment and doing some forensics tests. Mark. Oh, wait, sorry. I, his no. name is Steve Rogers. I just realized that. Mr. Rogers. No, he's he's. Captain America. Oh, I didn't know that. Is that the guy's name? I don't know who that is. Is that the character name or is that someone's actual real name? No, it's like from Marvel. Captain, no. Captain America? Nope. Okay. Couldn't tell Anyways, you. sorry. Yeah, so his name is Steve Rogers, like Captain America. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I've ever seen Captain America. Sorry. I know the outfit. I can see the guy, right? Isn't it like a circle with a star? And yes. actually, maybe I have seen the movie. Is he in World War II at some point in the one movie? Yeah, that's right. That's the only one I've seen. Yes. That's, that's the only one I've seen. Okay. So his name is Rogers in the show. It's Honestly, Steve, I didn't know Steve, that. It's Steve Rogers. <laughs> okay. I did, I did not know that. Well, Steve Rogers is denied access by Mark into the home that he is now living in with David. He directs all communication at that point to his attorney. And because police don't have any evidence to obtain a search warrant for the home, they can't really do anything. And so what, if anything, is at that house is unknown. Police have said that Mark is not a suspect. But I don't know if I actually buy that. That's suspicious. Detective Rogers found additional discoveries after reopening the case that feels he feels could be related 
to helping find Susan, who she may have been with, where she went that day. But he would not release what the discovery was or anything related to it. So he's keeping it really close to the chest. After Susan went missing, it was discovered that she had written a letter to her son, David, at some point. The context of that letter has never been publicly released. It's believed, though, by police, based off what Susan said in the letter to David, she knew her life was in danger. She knew she may not survive. And in the letter, she is telling David all of the things that a parent would want to tell their children if they knew they were never going to speak to them again. Okay. In 2005, investigators wanted to search a reservoir behind Mark Walsh's father's house in nearby Montclair, but nothing, to my knowledge, ever materialized from this. Christian Peppo, Susan's boyfriend at the time, told journalist Brad Hamilton with the New York Post in 2006 that Susan was being stalked and harassed by an ex-boyfriend named Billy Walker. How come Billy's name is never mentioned? The cops never did anything to protect Susan from Billy. Christian also said that Susan had a tape of Billy threatening her life. Billy supposedly was a coke addict who ran with a biker gang and confessed to chopping up bodies for the mob. Oh, God. The mob. <laughs> Bill reportedly called Susan numerous times leading in the weeks leading up to her disappearance. And Christian went on to tell the journalist that Susan allegedly had gone back to doing drugs and having sex with Billy but that she had created this plan to get rid of him. She was going to expose him as a rat and blackmail the mobsters that she knew in the strip clubs to kill Billy. Christian said, quote, I told her, don't do it. They might kill Billy, but they'll kill you too. She didn't listen, end quote. Wow. That, that just read like a crime scene book. Telling you this entire crime book story is like wild. That also just his story seems a little too uh, wrapped up in a bow. Perfect. Mm -hmm. I thought the same thing. Tight in a little tiny bow. There's either two things I think about this Christian guy, and we're almost done. We'll get into all of our theories, but I have some questions remaining, like on Christian, actually on all of them. I mean, they all are suspects in my opinion. I don't know how the police can sit here and say any of them aren't. And I mean, surely he's also there. Mark and Christian aren't living in the same house with the same situation. No, they are. That's what I'm saying. When police asked reopened this investigation they went to mark and asked to re-interview him and to do forensic testing on the house because right. mark is still living there with him with christian no 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 okay oh no 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 <laughs> that's no, what no. i was asking no 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 christian okay, okay. is like probably living in his own home it's mark okay. and david <laughs> okay no i'm so sorry no i was like what yes christian is living in the basement downstairs shit i don't know christian could be living in that basement but i don't think he is no um so christian says all this stuff that she wants to have this billy character killed and that she just doesn't listen Arthur 
merchant, Susan's younger half-brother, filed an open records request regarding his sister's case, hoping to find information related to what the police had investigated years before on this crazy, mysteriously puzzling disappearance. He was denied that request. The Nutley Police Department claimed Susan's case was exempt from New Jersey's Open Public Records Act because the investigation is still open. Her brother then files a lawsuit against the Nutley Police Department in September of 2020, seeking proof that the police department was actually still investigating the case. Good for you, bro. Good for you. An Essex County, New Jersey Superior Court judge ruled in Arthur's favor in February of 2022. The Nutley Police Department was ordered to hand over investigative files related to Susan's 1996 disappearance. Wow. The judge also ruled that the Nutley Police Department pay for all of Arthur's legal costs related to the suit that was brought forth. good for you Arthur like you go good for you bro like and good for the judge because here's the deal like this is my missing sister this is my missing loved one and now I have to drain my bank account spend all this money because I mean yeah you think that lawyers are going to be great and people are just going to do shit for free no no one's going to do everything people got bills to pay we all got mouths to feed so it's ridiculous because they weren't. The judge found that the police department had no proof that they were investigating the case. And she even, I say she, the judge stated that the police only received tips after the family initiated some type of publication via Unsolved Mysteries, the show disappeared, whatever. Mm. Yeah. Susan Walsh has been missing for 26 years, seven months, and 26 days at the time of this recording. She was five feet, six inches tall, around 110 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes, and she would be 63 years old today. She was last seen wearing a a black tank top dress and sandals. Her father, Floyd, passed away in 2013 without ever knowing what happened to his daughter, and he stated publicly at one point that he felt the mafia could have been involved. Many of Susan's peers in the sex industry believe she could have been the target of an organized crime hit, but according to police, there is no evidence to support this theory. James Ridgway, her co-worker and mentor, mentor stated Susan's disappearance could be related to a number of things. The Russian mafia, the vampire story. He states that she could have OD'd and the person that she was with just panicked or that it could be closer to home. Melissa Hines has stated over the years similar sentiments to Susan's father. The mafia could have been after Susan. It could have been a drug deal gone bad. Melissa stated at one point that she believes whatever happened to Susan happened in the house that day. Susan's brother, Arthur, has stated he doesn't know if it was an accident or an act of malice, whether it was planned or an organized hit and not coming back. I screwed that up. Arthur told the North New Jersey, quote, she did not decide to freaking go off and not be coming back, end quote. This is one 
thing that everybody in Susan's life can agree on is that they all do not believe that she would have knowingly and willingly walked away from her son's life and that she was very much a devoted mother and that her son was top priority. She even says so in the stripped documentary just two days before she says, quote, being a mom is my number one job. What happened to Susan Walsh on July 16th, 1996 in Nutley, New Jersey? Did she ever make it to the payphone? Who was she calling? Was it a drug deal gone bad? Did one of her stalkers take it too far? Did the Russian mafia or vampire cults or anyone within an organized crime world dispose of Susan for knowing too much? Or could it be something more simple like it was a boyfriend upset about other men in Susan's life? Or maybe her husband, who was upset with the life choices that she had been making and the fact that she had relapsed. Either of them could have acted out in a moment of rage. Or did Susan Walsh decide to walk away from her life out of fear or safety for David? We may never know. But what are your thoughts, Megan? That is the case. Gosh, it is a lot is to so write down. crazy. Oh my God. It just, it's, it's literally reads like a book and it's crazy because she was a writer it's like you were living a wild and crazy story you could write about right i don't know with the no do you think it was the mafia i i think my thoughts are the mob for sure the mob the mob rush mafia could be totally in on it because she was saying from the beginning after she wrote that story that she felt like she was being watched and that someone was after her. Or it could have been a domestic dispute of some sort in the house. And the reason why I think that too is because there was the letter that she wrote to David. Yeah. Did she write that letter? Or was that a fabricated letter? in the case of event that something did happen to her and people are trying to cover their tracks. I never thought of that. That's solid. Could be. I almost think the letter's probably real, though. Like, with everybody coming forward saying that she had been so vocal about the fact that she was being followed, she was being stalked, she felt like her life was in danger, I could see how she would write the letter, but I can also see exactly what you're saying Let's write a fake letter and totally throw a wrench in police investigation. Now, I think for me, I lean, yes, toward something related to her writing. The vampire cult stuff I find to be interesting. I think it's, we want, we're going to naturally, I think as humans, gravitate toward the Russian mafia, mafia theory. But what if what that vampire thing is true what if she met someone nefarious through that act it's hard to say it could have been anyone from any of her line of research the russian mafia is definitely intriguing but don't they say the simplest answer is always the easiest one right and in this why... case would be a domestic style dispute and it got me thinking that if she really did tell her friend melissa she had a job lined up in New York. 
I think she was being followed. I absolutely do. I don't know who was following her, who wanted someone following her, but I think she was following because Melissa has seen it. She was also not only that, she was bringing a lot of light to the sex industry in New York and New Jersey. So she was putting herself in her own spotlight in that sense. Very vulnerable. I don't think that she was as inconspicuous as she wanted herself to be believed as. Yeah. I can see that. I think she, too, like, she puts herself out here. She's super vulnerable. She could have met the wrong person. She's in a high-risk lifestyle anyways. You're now doing drugs. That increases your vulnerability. You're writing stories on, listen, let's be real. Whether it's true or not, the Russian mafia is real. We know that is fact. Whether or not she actually was connected in this, I, I choose to believe this happened, she very well could have stumbled upon something much bigger than her. And it leaves you to go down the avenue of say that's the case. And then maybe she did start working on some undercover stuff with an FBI agent who or a CIA CIA agent who then goes rogue. Right. Maybe that person then goes rogue and she's being blackmailed into this. Like the story literally could go a million different ways. It wouldn't surprise me if she was a CI too. Like, let's say. I think she was. was, She did get back on drugs. She found a drug dealer and oh, come to find out he's not actually a drug dealer. It's an undercover cop. Oh, that. Yeah. Or she could be working with them through the Russian side. That that is true. Or the third party partner silent partners that sided with the woman that the Russian mafia were bringing over mm-hmm. in that regard yeah I mean, it's just there's a lot of theories there on this is one. and that that's why for this one i'm like i lean more towards something related to the russian mafia side of it or it is something more simple and it's a domestic dispute situation at home maybe the situation with going to Florida was a real thing. Maybe she really wanted to start fresh. And maybe she mentioned this to Mark. And Mark was not having it. He was like, no. Maybe on that particular day, she goes down there, says whatever she says to him, and, and he snaps and it escalates. I wouldn't have thought that he would have been involved too much until I found out that he was like, no, search warrant, blah, blah, blah. Now, again, I could go either way with that because if you don't have a search warrant, why would I let you in my house anyways? Because then you could quote unquote find something like, no, thank you. You know, I'm also not trying to hinder an investigation, but but it's not my wife missing. What? What'd you you say? You don't have a search warrant and you're just invited into a house. Isn't that, couldn't that be deemed admissible in court if it did actually go to court? That's if they search the house without, that's if they search the house without Mark's ex, like acknowledgement. So Mark saying, no, you can't search my house. You can search my house when you have a search warrant. If they search his house, yes, it's inadmissible because they didn't have a search warrant. But if he says you can come in, then it's game okay. over at that point. But because he says no, I'm over here kind of like, okay, are you saying no because you live there with your son who at that point should have been an adult, 2005. The kid was born in 85. He's no longer a child. Why don't you want forensics coming in and doing anything in the house? Are you hiding something? 
This story is wild, and I really feel like it could be something related to her work. Do you think she's still alive? No. I don't either. I do not. I think no matter what happened, if it was the Russian mafia, they they disposed of her in acid or whatever they... I don't know what Russia does, but they did some Russian shit. <laughs> It's not funny. I'm not laughing at no. the fact that she is probably deceased, but I do not think she is alive. I think if the Russian mafia is involved or any of those organized crime worlds, she'll be found when we find Jimmy Hoffa. And if David or excuse me, Mark is involved, I think she probably is also dead and she's probably either in that house somewhere or on some property that his family owns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really sad. I do want to say one more quick thing, though, before we go. I rewatched the Unsolved Mysteries episode of this, you know, because, like, Robert Stack's my, my MVP. Okay, he says in there, quote, Russian mobsters in New Jersey were allegedly forcing young Russian women to work in strip clubs like slaves. This is like the very beginning of the clip on Susan. This is in the 90s, right? But I just, when he says it, he's like, you know, the Robert Stack voice, and he's all Russian women working in strip clubs like slaves. <laughs> it's just so... <laughs> Did you ever watch Unsolved no. Oh, my gosh. No. Anyways, I had to laugh at that because I'm like, you think, Robert? You think Robert Stack like slaves? No, they are, bro. It's not a simile. Mm. It's a comparison. <laughs> that is the case of Susan Walsh. So we both think. Yeah. Unfortunately, I do. Which is sad, but. I don't think it's like a like a Corinna Slusser. I don't necessarily feel like she is deceased because these women alive uh, are repeat dollar bills, if you will. They can make. Money, you know, like drugs and guns, you sell them once and that's it. A woman or a man or a child, for that matter, can be sold over and over and over again. So in some cases, I think that these individuals that are missing could still be out there. But for this particular case, with everything that is involved, it just doesn't make sense. Unless she actually did walk away out of fear of her life and wanting to protect David. That right. is, that is, I will say the one thing that I feel like could be possible in this story is she writes this letter to her son and she is so scared for her life and for David's life that she removes herself from that situation to protect David. And everyone has said they don't think she would ever leave, but I'm like, but a mother would leave if they knew it was going to protect their child. I also am not 100% sure that she didn't have some sort of mental illness mm. either. Mm -hmm. Like she could have firmly believed that someone was after her. She wrote that letter and then she disappeared yeah. under a psychotic break. Yeah, she could have. And I mean, we all know drugs like... She had a bad batch of whatever she was doing. Could have right. made her have hallucinations as well. I do not know if her DNA is in CODIS or anything like that. I would imagine it probably is. But if, hopefully it is that way. If 
they find a body and it's identified, they'll have a way to identify it, but that is the case. Do you want to take it away, Megan? Unless you got anything else you'd like to say? I would just, that was a good one. Pretty good. Thanks. I liked it. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. All right. Weekly spotlights. First, we have Heidi Allen, who was 19 years old when she was last seen on April 3rd, 1994 in New Haven, New York. Heidi is described as a white female with brown hair and blue eyes. She was approximately 5 feet 11 inches tall and weighed around 145 pounds when she went missing. Heidi was a college student reported missing under unknown circumstances. She was last seen at the DW conference st- she was last seen at the DW Convenience Store in New Haven, New York on April 3, 1994. Heidi was last seen wearing a gray sweatshirt with plaid lettering, blue jeans, and white sneakers. Additional photo is age progressed to 35 years old. I guess I gave you the wrong one. Do I need to do that one? No, just, <clears throat> just go. Next we have... Christine Kupka, who was 28 years old when she was last seen on October 24th, 1998, 1998 in Brooklyn, New York. Christine is described as a white female with red hair and blue eyes. She was approximately 5 feet 8 inches tall and weighed around 140 pounds when she went missing. Christine was last seen on Westminster Road. She has a scar on her nose and she was 5 months pregnant at the time. Anyone with information is asked to call the New York City Police Department Missing Person Squad, case number 98-7488-AP. Last, we have Andre Bryant, who was one month old when he was last seen on March 29, 1989 in Brooklyn, New York. Andre is described as a black male with black hair and brown eyes. He was approximately 1 foot 7 inches tall and weighed around 10 pounds when he went missing. Andre and his mother were both abducted by two unknown black females. Andre's mother was found deceased the following day, but Andrea has never been located. Anyone with information is asked to call the New York City Police Department Missing Person Squad case number 89 Black Owl Photography, located in the heart of Old Town Louisville, is a five-star rated photography business with over 15 years of experience. Kelly Blackall, the owner of Blackall Photography, has a way of making anyone feel confident and comfortable in those sometimes awkward shots. She can get a wonderful photo of anyone, even those Chandler Bing clients. Kelly can capture shots that look effortless and natural while locking in beauty around. Blackall Photography will handle your class portraits, engagement photos, or even that perfect political campaign headshot. Kelly has done it all and loves to get creative with her clients. If you have been on the fence about getting those updated headshots or need family photos for the holidays, reach out to Kelly and book your session today at Black All Photography on Instagram. That's B-L-A-C-K-A-L-L Photography. Or you can visit at blackallphotography.com. Schedule your perfect shots today and I promise you won't be disappointed. Until next week, true crime friends, I promise to remain loud, bold, and out there with all I do. You fine folks, stay vigilant. Please be aware and always remember that the world needs love, 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 not love.